Hello and welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Peter Bertels, the CEO of Super Retail Group. Thanks for joining us. I'm really looking forward to sharing my conversation with Peter Bertels with you today. I've known Peter for about seven years and certainly he's had a very impressive uh, career and uh, received some great recognition for his skills as a CEO and I think that uh, you'll enjoy listening to the conversation. But before we get into that, for those people who are new to the Aritate podcast, let me just briefly introduce uh, the concept behind this podcast. Arate is a Greek word that means the fulfillment of one's full potential. And my business, Arate Executive, is an executive search firm and in that role of uh, talking to not only CEOs and non-executive directors, but also people who aspire to have those roles in the future, uh, we felt there was a great opportunity to start a podcast and interview some people who have achieved great outcomes in terms of their career so that people listening can take some lessons and hopefully that will help them to plan and accelerate their own careers to their full potential. And this is, uh, I think, podcast number four. And certainly uh, the feedback that we've been getting so far has been excellent and I've really been enjoying the conversations with the uh, various CEOs that have been guests. Arate Executive is an executive search company. We find CEOs, senior executives, and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. And we provide a very sophisticated uh, research-based headhunting, but at a fraction of the price of traditional search firms uh, through a variety of uh, different ways that we can deliver our service to our clients. So if you have a executive search requirement, either now or in the future, I certainly would be very uh, happy to have a chat to you about that. Also, for those who haven't already joined the LinkedIn community, the CEO Incubator, I certainly would recommend that you join that free group. Uh, it is a great way to network with your peers across industry. At the time of this recording, we now have over 1,400 members. And it's also the portal that we use to advertise all of our C-suite and non-executive vacancies. So by being a member of that group, you'll get priority awareness when those roles go to the market. So anyway, let's get on with uh, the show and let me introduce to you Peter Bertels. Peter Bertels is the Group Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Super Retail Group, an ASX-listed retail organisation that last year turned over approximately $2.25 billion. Peter's been in the role for almost 10 years and in that time has been recognised in 2013 as Australian CEO of the Year by the Australian's Deal magazine and in 2014 as Retail CEO of the Year by the National Retail Association. Peter was born in the UK and he holds a Bachelor of Science in Mathematical Sciences as well as postgraduate qualifications in Chartered Accountancy. Peter is married and he has two growing children. Uh, when not at work, Peter keeps fit through running and going to the gym and he's also a very keen musician 
playing bass. I look forward to this conversation and here we are, Peter Burles. Peter, thanks very much for joining me today. That's a great pleasure. Uh, what's uh, been happening with you this week? Well, actually, I uh, just came back uh, from a couple of weeks over in the UK on Sunday night. And uh, then this week, a uh, bit of a catch-up because I had a... Uh, over in the UK, I had a week's leave. The okay. second week was a week's leave, so uh, plenty of things to catch up on in the office. And uh, we've got the annual general meeting of the company next week, so we have a board meeting ahead of that and just preparing everything for the board meeting and for what's going to be announced at the annual general meeting. So, uh -huh. uh, yeah. And is there some hot news? Is there interesting <laughs> things uh, uh, to look forward to? Look, I think uh, it's fairly standard, to be frank. Okay. Uh, yeah, we always provide a bit of an update on our trading performance at uh, the annual general meeting and we've got uh, a bit of work we're doing around one of our businesses called raise outdoors where we're reinventing that business and so there's a little bit okay. of an update on that so oh, great. yeah and so um obviously the uk being home how often would you get uh, back there to see your family and so on I try and get back at least once a year and um, at the moment probably a couple of times a year. There's uh, a level of interest in the company over in the UK from investors and it's also useful just to have a look at what's happening in the retail scene over in, sure. in the UK. So uh, okay. generally I find there's a, a need to get there a couple of times a year. And would the UK be perceived as... Um a market that's generally more advanced than Australia or how would they compare uh, against other places around the world? Well, we tend to go to both the US and uh, the UK to get some, some ideas. You know, it's a very similar business model over there, but uh, one key difference is that the level of take-up of uh, multi-channel retailing, internet online retailing is, mm. is much more significant in uh, the UK okay, and businesses have done a great job there in integrating their online channel with their retail channel, with their physical store channel and that's something that I think we're always very interested to learn from as to how organisations are, are doing that. And do you think that's because there's just a, a much larger population there and because of that they're more advanced or are they more heavily invested in new technologies as a, as a culture in the retail space in, say, Australia? Well, it's, it's interesting because perhaps the propensity to adopt new technologies is certainly greater in, in Australia when you look at uh, the rollout of the iPhones and, or smartphones. You know, we've seen Australia grab that m more readily than other countries. And, and I think, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't say that Australia's behind in terms of use of technology, but I think there is a different dynamic to the retail environment and uh, in the UK and I'm obviously from the UK you know the the shopping experience isn't a great one because you've got a lot of old cities they were mm. never architected with a view to making retailing uh, convenient so a lot of stores in 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 town centres not a lot of car parking mm -hmm. and so it's quite a challenging experience for the customer to go shopping in the right. UK whereas here being a newer country bigger roads, uh, regional shopping centres, it's a lot easier to park close to the stores. And, and so that element of convenience 
that uh, we have in Australia isn't there in, in the UK. And when we look at online shopping, I think the drivers of online shopping tend to be um, predominantly convenience and, and range. So it's just easy for me to shop online than it is to go to store or I get a better price mm-hmm. online than I can get, get, get in store. Those tend to be the two biggest drivers of online shopping. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, if you look at why are people shopping? Absolutely, they're shopping to try and get the best price mm-hmm. and to some degree a wider range, range of products that they can't get in, in Australia. But uh, convenience isn't so much the, the driver here. And I think that's perhaps mm. why we're not seeing the same level. Right. Okay, oh, that's interesting. Well, uh, certainly in relation to the conversation we're going to have today, what I like to do is just sort of start right back at the beginning and uh, talk about those formative years of you know your early childhood and how that potentially you know led you into the career that you have. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about you know uh, your, where you started in terms of your family and uh, your early days, brothers, sisters, mum and dad, etc. Yeah, yeah. So I. Uh was uh, born in, in the south coast of the UK, a place called Hastings, uh, back in uh, the early 60s. And um, my sister came along three three years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved to a place in, in the UK called Nottingham. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved there in, in 1968, I think it was. Uh-huh. And um, I went to school in, in, in Nottingham. My parents were teachers uh, and education was very important to them Mm -hmm. Um, my mum actually uh, was originally German and and she came across uh, to the UK married my dad and um, she took herself through university actually when we were young kids and then became a teacher Um, and and so certainly there was that focus on education and my parents uh, put all of their kind of uh, available money into my education, my my daughter's education, and and so, yeah, that kind of value of of uh, work and and education certainly came came through there. Uh, at at school, I had a bit of a an inkling towards maths. I, I was quite good in that area. And um, then I went off to university and uh, I felt that maths was actually something that I could do that uh, would allow me to do other things that I wanted to do at university, such as uh, uh, I went to a university that was very strong in athletics and okay. I was quite a, into athletics at that time, so I wanted to have time to do that yeah. and uh, also a little bit of music as well. So I um, thought I'd do a bit of maths on the side. Sure. And, uh, so I did that for, for three years and um, kind of to, towards the end of that process you then look for a, for a job and um, yeah, again I wasn't particularly certain of what I wanted to do so I looked around and then I decided that, uh, that um, accountancy was perhaps something that I could get into that would allow me to get some training for business and so I went off and um, trained to be an accountant. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you know, my background, uh, I was very heavily into music earlier in my life too. And uh, I've read quite a lot of studies that uh, people who are very interested in mathematics are often very good musicians and vice versa. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I have, absolutely. And yeah. I think, you know, the patterns in, in music, uh, so the way the brain works, being yeah. able to put those patterns together, mm. I think is very, yeah, it's been proved and that's the case. Yeah. And bass has always been the instrument of choice? Uh, so look, I, I started on piano, right. uh, as many of us do. I suppose we have the sort of uh, formal piano lessons, and, and actually, I uh, 
I uh, also um, did uh, choral singing for okay. quite a long time as yeah. well, and so uh, that, that that was probably how I started. Um, but uh, that wasn't particularly cool. Right. So uh, then I went across to the six string guitar. Yeah. Um, but I've you know I'm tall. I've yeah. got big hands. Yeah. And so trying to get my hands a, a, across the uh, small nylon strings on a on a six string acoustic was pretty challenging. So uh, made the move across to to bass, and I, I was actually I suppose a, a little bit into bands at that time that all had very strong bass players. Right. So um, yeah, quite influenced by that, and you know that time the bass coming through as a little bit more of a, a lead instrument right. so it seems to be quite a cool thing to get into Emmy from Motorhead being one or oh. <laughs> no look I, I was more into sort of uh, progressive rock right, sort of okay. genre and so people like Chris Squire and yeah. Geddy Lee uh, of uh, yeah, Chris Squire of Yes and Geddy Lee of Rush were right. two big heroes of mine but also you know people like John Entwistle from yeah, The Who and, yeah. and, and so on that right. was probably more my uh, influences sure no I mean, certainly, uh, uh, you know, you are a very tall fellow and, and it seems to be a natural inclination for tall guys to play bass. There's a lot of, la- lot of ladies play bass too, which I find quite interesting. My son's uh, just turned eight and he came home from school yesterday and said, oh, Dad, I've just applied to learn double bass and I thought I'll be the one lugging it around <laughs> everywhere. So I'm not really looking forward to that. And so coming back to the mathematics parents, teachers, did you ever think... Uh, you know, you might have a career as a, a teacher, or was that never really something that appealed to you? Yeah, no, no I've always had a, I suppose, a preference. It was always a, a commercial type career. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did uh, actually economics at, uh, at school in the UK. You pick three subjects towards, or certainly back then, you picked three subjects to to focus on uh, in your last two years of school. And I did um, maths, uh, physics, and economics. And then actually at university, the course that I took was called Mathematical Sciences. And uh, as a bit of a minor within that, I took economics. So I, I always had that interest in the commercial mm-hmm. side of things. And, and, and so look, I looked at, um, initially I, I was looking at careers that perhaps could apply uh, mathematics in a commercial environment. So uh, operational type uh, planning roles, logistics, those type of areas where you, you're bringing those skills to, to play. Um, but none of that really grabbed me. And, and as I say, really, at the end, I kind of wasn't sure what I wanted to do and just felt that accountancy was a bit of a safe bet. So right. uh, that's the way I went. Okay, and, and so straight out of uni into uh, ICAEW? Yes, that's the Institute of Chartered Accountants uh, in England and Wales. Okay. And um, that's the qualification that you take. So I worked for Coopers and Lybrand. Right, okay. And... yeah, as, as I was working at Coopers and Lybrand, you take initially, for those of, you, of us that take non-directly um, relevant courses, so maths not being a mm-hmm. directly relevant course, you take a conversion course okay. where you learn the basics of accounting and law and that sort of stuff. Uh, so I did that for a year and then you do your professional exams, uh, which I then did over the next uh, couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then sort of qualified as a accountant in... Um, I think 1989, something so like that. Sort of the equivalent of doing chartered accounting yeah, or a CPA that's right. here. That's it. Right, exactly. okay. Yeah. And, uh, and with uh, Coopers and Lybrand uh, in audit for about five years. 
Yeah, after about four, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And did you enjoy that work? <laughs> uh, so, look, I, I, I was um, lucky in a sense that I went into a smaller office of Coopers and Lybrand and, and we took on some of the, let's say, SME type okay. um, audits. And, 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 and actually, that was a lot more commercial than working in uh, the big offices of Coopers where you'd go and work with the big multinationals. And certainly as a junior, you'd be just essentially just ticking and bashing, whereas uh, in the types of roles that I was doing, uh, I was able to get in and talk to the business owners and business managers, and uh, I thought it was a a great opportunity because I I was also managing jobs at quite a young uh, age as well, so Mm -hmm. um, it was really quite good grounding but the work itself was always where you're you know you're auditing sure you're not actually generating stuff yourself so mm-hmm. uh always there's that inkling to mm. once i got my qualification to get onto the other side of the fence mm-hmm. and did you um particularly sort of work within that retail space with them or was that not until you left and, and joined boots that you really started your career in retail yeah a great thing about um the accounting uh, opportunity was that you, you got exposure to all sorts of different industries. So, um, you know, whether that's financial services, manufacturing, um, pharmaceuticals, uh, 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 got involved in engine aircraft manufacturing. Uh, so all, all sorts of different things. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so what was it uh, about the uh, Boots opportunity that originally appealed to you to give up your career uh uh, with Coopers and Librand. Yeah, so um, through my university days, I'd done a bit of work with, with Boots, um, a bit more operational work, uh, and um, Boots was a great company in, in Nottingham where I was, uh, where I grew up and, and where I was working, it, it was the company. Mm-hmm. And so there was always an element of trying to, to get into to Boots. Um, I'd actually applied to get into Boots when I was at university, but they turned me down at that right. point. Uh, so that's always a bit of a sore spot, but uh, um, I, I was keen to, to get back in and mm-hmm. and uh, felt they were a, a big com- company at that time. They were a multinational. They had um, a number of different business lines. So mm-hmm. they the big in retail, but they also manufactured their own pharmaceutical okay. and toiletries products. Mm-hmm. They had a healthcare, over-the-counter healthcare business, um, and they had a number of other retail businesses as well. So it, it was a great organisation to be part of. Um, and, yeah, so I applied there, and, and the way in for chartered accountants was to go in initially through their internal audit function. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I did, and you know, keen to get out of that as soon as possible. Sure. Uh, so I was in there for just under 12 months before I took on a, a more mainstream finance role. Wow. Okay, and I mean, for people who've uh, lived in the UK, uh, my parents are both English and I've spent time in the UK, Boots really is an iconic brand. Uh, but for those people who aren't familiar with it, um, maybe because obviously they were such a, an employer of choice for you, describe a, a little bit about you know what it was about the Boots culture or the brand that was so appealing as a young person to want to go and join them. Yeah, so um, the business had been around for well over 100 years. Um, It it was one of the most trusted brands on the high street because its heritage was uh, uh, pharmacy. Um, And 
yeah, was recognised as a, a, a great retail business, great operator. Um, had the values of uh, the, I think the original founder still resonating through through the organisation, certainly when I joined. Um, and I think that, that was both a good and you know, not so good thing. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it was just generally recognised as, as one of the top companies in, mm-hmm. in the UK. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and with them for uh, uh, pretty much 12 years. 12 years yeah. uh, and so uh, uh, talk us through how your career evolved in that business. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned initially in uh, internal audit for a shorter period as possible um, and then moved into a uh, financial role um, actually in the corporate centre um, to, to to work on the corporate planning and uh, got involved there in working with all of the different businesses around their financial planning, strategic planning and their business reporting and, and looking to develop that and and uh, over the next three years or so worked my way through um, three or four different roles in that area taking on sort of more more and more senior positions until I was running that corporate um, planning and reporting function mm-hmm. for the group. Um, so managing quite a large team by that stage? Uh, so it was more a team of um, specialists working for us so about 12 professionals working as part of the, the team but importantly coordinating activities across the whole group so mm-hmm. liaising with uh, business teams across the whole organization and, and so there's a lot of collaboration and uh, coordination across uh, quite a, a large group of people um, the organization felt that I had uh, potential and and so they asked me to go on a, uh, a development program uh, which was was great so I took a bit of time out of the business on a development program with uh, around 11 or so other people and um, we got exposure to some international stuff and uh, we spent some time in the management college and, and, and so on and that was great and then from there you know, we were encouraged to look for different opportunities in the organisation and um, I, I got to hear of the fact that Boots had an Australian subsidiary uh, which was in the pharmaceutical area and so we in Boots Australia we were selling pharmaceutical products into hospitals and, and we were selling over-the-counter healthcare products into pharmacies and also into Woolworths and, and Coles and um, the business well, it was actually quite a profitable business but uh, was continuing to uh, face the challenge of ever increasing costs in its manufacturing processes because it used to manufacture uh, pharmaceuticals here in, in Australia actually in uh, north in a place called North Rocks in mm-hmm. the north side of Sydney mm-hmm. uh, and, and so we came out and had a look at all of that and decided that we were better off manufacturing the pharmaceutical products in Thailand. Okay. So the business was fairly significantly restructured. We bought, um, actually we bought the, the UV uh, Suncare brand from Colgate at that time and, and we had brands such as Nurofen and Strepsils. Okay. 
and um, yeah, we created a really an over-the-counter marketing business as opposed to what previously had been a, a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. So did that work over a three-year period, and at the end of that, um, Boots were keen for me to go back to the UK. Oh, so you were living in Australia during that time? I was, Okay, yes. in yeah. Sydney? Yeah, in Sydney. Right, yeah. okay. And, yep, yeah, I went back to the, to the UK. Uh, they wanted me to take on a, a, a more senior position, which I, I did actually in, in uh, IS uh, in the UK and was mm-hmm. involved in the planning of, of new IT systems for the organisation. And then they asked me to take on a, um, the head of finance for the Boots, the chemist, uh, planning, um, marketing and, and merchandising activities. So, yeah, that was uh, a great position. Um, but I, you know, I suppose I felt that I was part of quite a big cog and mm-hmm. I'd been part of quite a big cog for uh, a, a long time. And... Um, I really wanted the opportunity to do something different. So 12 years in, it was the opportunity to do something different. And I really enjoyed my time in Australia. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to come back to Australia. Uh, So I'd got a young family at that time. Um, So I'd got a daughter of around six and a son of around three. And... Mm -hmm looking at the experience that they'd had when they were living in Australia versus the experience living in, in the UK and the outdoor lifestyle and uh, access to opportunities and so felt that Australia was going to be a great place to bring up kids and um, started looking for opportunities and the opportunity of coming to work in this, at the time, quite small company called sure. Super Cheap Auto uh, was put to me, so uh, that was. So you were still in the UK when you were offered that opportunity. Yeah, so I started talking to the guys about the opportunity, and um, uh, they were thinking about um, continuing to grow the business, mm-hmm. and at some point, looking at a change of ownership of the of the company. Mm-hmm. And they wanted somebody who'd had experience of working in a larger organisation and had had experience of working with public markets and everything that, that, that went with that. So um, I think I was a little bit uh, more experienced than they, they were initially looking for, but um, uh, the guy that actually was managing the recruitment for them at that time convinced them that... Uh, it was w- worthwhile bringing someone like myself in, and um, yeah, we kind of went from there. So it was right, good. and was that an opportunity where uh, you had seen it in the market and you made application, or were you tapped on the shoulder, or how did it first come up on your radar? Yeah, so um, it uh, actually was something that I, I saw, and and so I put myself forward for it just to to explore that uh, that that, mm-hmm. that opportunity okay and um and then so moving here and obviously that role based in brisbane um and so give people sort of an idea of the scope of the organization at the time what sort of uh, size of uh turnover and employees and so on yeah so at that time uh, the business um when i was talking to them had just uh, around 60 stores and the year that uh 
we were in, we had annual sales of about 130 million dollars uh, that 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 year. So, uh, and I think uh, I can't remember exactly how many em- employees at, at the time, but I'd imagine in the order of um, something like a thousand, let's say at, the, at that mm-hmm. point uh, across the organisation. But uh, you know, I recall the. The office was about 40, 45 people in across the whole of the of the office. Um, so uh, coming in, um, there were there's a lot of work to do around systems and processes because mm-hmm. um, the business had actually grown really quickly. So from ninety five to two thousand, it had grown from about. Uh, Eight, eight stores in 95 to you know around that 50 odd in 2000 and um the the business needed a bit of work to sure. sort of catch up with that and, and then to plan for for the future so we needed to build a financial team mm-hmm. uh financial processes you know they, they essentially the company didn't know really how it had traded until uh, Grant Thornton, who, who who were great supporters of the business, that uh, came in and did their annual accounts process. Mm-hmm. You know, it was only at that point that the business really knew how it had traded. So you know, we needed to put in place uh, weekly reporting, monthly reporting, and mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So yeah. Was- and was that really the driver for creating the role that you eventually took? Uh, we were in an accelerated growth period. We need somebody who can actually come in. Uh, and uh, overlay the systems and structure, no doubt you'd learn it and become you know, an expert in from your time with Boots. Uh, that was the motivation to uh, employing you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you know, with a view to, as I say, potentially a, a listing of the company mm-hmm. in the next three years or so. So that was all part of the, the plan. There was a need also to look at the funding arrangements of the company mm-hmm. and... Um, yeah, I think that, that that was quite interesting in that um, the organisation was always uh, or had had been a little bit uh, at a sense that they needed to go cap in hand to the banks. But um, I suppose having had a bit of an experience of having a little bit more negotiating power in a relationship, you know, I brought some of that to, to play as, as well. And, and we changed the, the funding arrangements of the organisation to set ourselves up more for for future growth as well, which was, you know, very, very good. Mm. And how long were you in the role before you stepped into CEO and MD? Yeah, so um, the organisation um, listed as a public company in 2004. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of 2005, or probably around um, October of 2005, uh, Bob Thorne, who who had done you know an outstanding job uh, building the company from those eight stores to at that time um, something like 200 stores uh, that the organisation had. Yeah, so an incredible job over that period from say '98 until 2005. Uh, he he decided that uh, he, he wanted a change, mm-hmm. um, which to be frank was a little bit of a shock for uh, the the organisation, um, given that we were only recently listed as a as a public company, and um, the the board. Uh, with actually, you know, I have to be thankful for Bob. Bob 
kind of suggested that I was the right man to mm-hmm. take on the role and the board were supportive of that. So the board asked me to take on the role um, in October or in November, I think. And um, yeah, I said, well, I, I need to think about that because uh, it was a little bit un- unexpected and uh, Bob was a particular personality and I'm quite a different personality and, and I needed to sort of really reflect in, in terms of, whether I could take on the role, uh, given that he had created this organisation. So um, I sort of reflected over the the next few weeks and um, decided that, uh, yes, I could do, perhaps with a bit of uh, support from the original founder of the company, a guy called Reg Rowe, who's, who started the business uh, back in, in 1972. And Reg, uh, I suppose... Um, partly through uh, giving me a book to read, which was a book called um, Good to Great by yeah. Jim Collins. And um, he said, look, I, I want you to read this book and uh, particularly have a look at what it says about leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, in there it, it talked about different styles of, of leadership and, and leadership styles that were most effective to to achieving sustained value in an organization and uh talked about how many organizations have that leader who's who's leading from the front and Mm -hmm. you know setting the direction and getting everyone to follow so that sort of uh, charismatic uh leader uh and and it talked about that as a stage of leadership but it, it also talked then about yeah, for true sustained success, you've got to build capability across your leadership group, and it can't be one person that's uh, continually the person that has to make all the calls and 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 set the direction. You need a a a team that's collaborating effectively together, and 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 so um, I, I read that and thought, yeah, actually, that's something I can do. Mm. Uh, I can create that sort of environment. So that's what I've been trying to do uh, since since that time. So uh, took on the role at the beginning of two thousand and and six, and uh, yeah, we're getting close to ten years later. Sure. And so, just before we get to sort of that part of your career, do you think that back, uh, you know, nineteen eighty nine, you're first stepping out of um, you know Coopers and Lybrand into Boots? If you think back to where your head was at then. Would you have said at that time you aspired to be the CEO or MD of a very large organisation? Was that something that was you were cognizant of? No, no absolutely not. Right. No, I think um, I've never, I've never actually had a career um, plan as as, as such. Uh, I mean, I've, I've certainly been mindful of maybe. The next five years, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or so, I suppose. I always thinking that. And when you're a, you know, a young person starting off in in business, you you certainly want to establish yourself and, and feel that you can create a, a, a good career for yourself. Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly had no mind that I was actually going to be the, be the the CEO. And you know, I, I remember you know, perceiving the role of CEO sort of back in in my boots days, I mean, we used to, um, it was a little bit traditional back in boots. Uh, Certainly at that time, it changed by the time I'd finished. But back in 1989, yeah, the executives had a separate corridor Mm -hmm. and um, each of the offices had these massive 
oak doors like they were I don't know probably four meters tall right and so to go in there it was a big effort to open the door and so the whole thing was just so intimidating sure. to go and see the because if one you have to go to their corridor and then to go through these doors and and then the big offices and sit, sitting down so yeah the whole thing of being at that level was so so intimidating it was never something that I suppose I thought that's something I can I can do mm. so it, it was so far removed uh, it, the aspiration didn't even get kindled it was more uh, this division of us being the executive leaders and and everybody else yeah at that time now right. that, that that evolved over I mean uh, you know it was a classic you know, separate executive dining room at that sure. point and yeah. they all had chauffeurs and all mm. that. now that all changed over the 12 years that I was I was there, so by the end, you start to see them more as one of us, right? And there was a lot more in, in interaction, um, and of course, I'd become a much more senior person in the organisation as well. So, oh. yeah, that kind of balance or imbalance that uh, was back there in 1989 wasn't quite there in 2001. Well, having been to the uh, the head office of Super Retail Group, it would be fair to say it's quite different to that. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and I think you know that that was always one thing actually from Reggie's days through Bob's, and and, right. and then something I've tried to preserve one of the the strengths of the organization is that we are a team and mm. uh, everyone plays a role in the team but mm. we're part of the team and uh, that's why to this day you know we we wear uniforms because it's a a, a, a demonstration of the fact that we're part of the the team we're mm-hmm. not um something separate mm-hmm. and uh for people not being able to see this conversation peter's sitting here proudly with a super retail group logo on his shirt um and so you step into the role uh in 2006 what was the original mandate i mean the business had gone through a period of significant growth it had been through a successful listing um you know what what were you originally empowered uh to take the business forward to yeah, so what was, um, I think what what was interesting at that time was that the company had gone through a lot of uh, success, but actually the 2005 calendar year was not um, where, the, where we wanted it to be. The, and the, the, the trading performance of the super cheap auto business was starting to... Uh, to struggle, uh, um, and we actually experienced negative like-for-like sales growth. Um, and we we just launched a new business called BCF, and our investors were somewhat sceptical about whether the concept of BCF was, was going to work. Um, so there was actually a need to, 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 to get a focus on on those two areas and 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 demonstrate to the investors and and within the company that there was a plan to return the super cheap auto business to growth Mm -hmm. and to ensure that bcf was a success um but i also yeah i think one of the aspects was the the business it had been very entrepreneurially driven and and i say lots of uh, success but uh, in terms of building capability, building organisational capability, sustainability, those types of things, uh, that hadn't been so much of a, a focus. So there was a need to really th- 
look at some of the behind the scenes areas like quality, supply chain and uh, organisational development being, I think, three particular areas that we, we are, and, and actually broad organisational culture as well, to be frank, uh, retention of team and, and so on. These were some areas that we said, you know, they're not where they need to be mm. if we're going to build a truly sustainable organisation. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we need to work on those. And um, I also needed to build a, a collaborative leadership group because, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, you know, there's going to be a change sure. in, in style. So there are quite a few things that we needed to to start working on. Mm-hmm. And so uh, no doubt you needed to draw on external resources to uh, upskill yourself in terms of, you know, new responsibilities and, and you know, a, a business that's uh, growing and, and uh, moving into new areas. What, what were some of the ways that you did that? Did you take on a, a formal coach or did you actively engage specific mentors or what were some of your strategies in that regard? Yeah, so, um, I mean, what, what I didn't mention before was that um, through my time in Boots, and particularly actually in Boots in Australia, I'd been uh, in that role of, of um, redeveloping the Boots Australia business. I'd actually worked in uh, quite a few different parts of the organisation. So I'd worked on the supply chain and worked on uh, HR and, and IT and, and so on. So I'd actually had quite a good uh, level of, broad experience for three years mm-hmm. uh, at that point and, and so that was a really good foundation that I was able to draw on at that stage in terms of um, uh, I suppose then getting external perspectives and, and building my experience and and, and knowledge um, I'm, I'm somebody who learns through conversations and uh, looking to talk to as many people as, as, as possible, people that have uh, gone through similar circumstances. So I've never established anything formally with any one or sure. two individuals, but uh, it was more a case of trying to get out there and, and talk to talk to others and other people in the retail industry and also, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, kind of going overseas and talking to people who'd been through similar experiences in, in some of the overseas markets. So it was more a case of, of that going and talking to mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, having been in that role for about 10 years, what, what would you say are some of the key milestones along that period uh, in terms of the growth of the business and, and your overall remit? Well, I think, um, you know, from, from, from that point, yeah, that, that was a, that was a 500 million dollar business at the time that I took over um, and you know, it's the the year that just finished we were a, a 2.25 billion dollar business so you know we've seen a, a reasonably significant sure. growth over over that time and yeah that's come from a number of areas so it's come from reinventing super cheap auto and you know that business has really been a, a really good strong performer um certainly over the last seven or eight years and you know, it's got 300 stores now uh so it's it's grown by around 70 or 80 stores from the time that i, I took over but its profitability has grown significantly and that's 
benefited from quality and it's benefited from supply chain sourcing. Um, so establishing an international sourcing team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got around 100 people that work for us offshore now uh, who are outsourcing and they're helping with quality, cost of goods, logistics. That's been a huge, a huge thing. Cementing BCF, I mean, BCF, uh, the time I took over, I think we had 13 stores and you know, we've now got 117 and um, it's, it's a good business. It's a good, strong, strong business. Uh, we bought a business called Raise Outdoors in 2010 and that's been a bit more challenging and mm. we're, we're working on reinventing that at the moment. And then the big move, which you know, I think uh, was a, was a surprise to to some, and you know, I remember the Australian newspaper at the time said uh, that I've either um, lost my marbles <laughs> or I'm going to be a, proven to be a bit of a genius. Right. And, and that was the acquisition of uh, Rebel and Amart Sports back mm. in 2011, because it. Uh, it was essentially uh, almost doubling the size of the of the oh, company, mm. and um, yeah, it was an interesting one because we bought that business from private equity, and yeah, there was a bit of a perception that private equity take all the value out of businesses. There's no more value to be had. So, mm. pay, paying a lot of money to buy a business from private equity was seen to be an interesting move, and. Um, fortunately, we've been able to demonstrate value in 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 that. So uh, that, that that was a really important one. So the marbles are still intact. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's excellent. And uh, and you know you've been recognised uh, in terms of your accomplishments as a CEO, Australian CEO of the Year 2013, Retail CEO of the Year 2014. What do you think it is about you that has enabled you to, you know, make that transition from a technical finance role, not only to becoming a CEO, but to becoming a CEO that is, um, you know, successful enough that you're getting external recognition for your skills as a leader? So I think that, um, you know, I was very fortunate that that Boots did give me that broad-based experience and... When I talk to uh, younger team members in our organisation, I talk to them about the importance of uh, getting breadth of experience. Um, I think it's it, it, it's vital because, yeah, as a CEO, you need to be able to assimilate a lot of information quickly and to form judgments. And sometimes you've got to form those judgments with only limited information um and if you're doing that in an area in which you have no understanding then it's really tough Mm. but at least if you've got a grasp of the fundamentals then you can generally um i think get to the right outcomes um and you know you've got to you've got to be able to trust you trust your team but your team need to earn that trust as well and, and and so you've got to be able to assess whether the team are telling you the right things or or, or not so um getting that broad-based experience i think is really critical i i think that you know certainly a part of my leadership style and you know, going back to thinking about collaboration that's really important you know you've got to recognize that um you don't do things as an individual, and it's never been my 
positioning that um, the organisations about me as an individual. It's about the, the 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 team, and I've got a great group of fellow leaders who um, I've got great relationships with. And yeah, you know, I've had longevity of those relationships. So uh, across my 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 leadership group, um, I think uh, in in the what is ten years, yeah, I, I've got um, four out of my ten that have been there the whole t- ten years, and in the others, I think I've had one change. Mm-hmm. Um, in the other positions over that time so yeah great great um uh, consistency of leadership i think has been been really important at uh, that then permeating through the organization and as i mentioned retention um was a an opportunity retail retail is an industry in which people move on sure. um you get a lot of young people they're in the business for a short period of time and the retail industry as a whole tends to lose over half of its people every year and we were um, around that level back in 2005 but um, we've we've halved that mm-hmm. now uh, so we've got really good levels of retention um, and we've got good levels of engagement and, and I think uh, focusing on the team and you know, it's my, my mantra is team first mm-hmm. um, you, know, you, you hear people talking about customer first but uh, my personal philosophy is you can't do what you need to do for the customer unless you actually get your team right because um, it's the team that actually do what it needs you need to do for your customer so get your team right first then then the, you, you look after the customer and um, that's that's worked well I think and uh, I mean I can appreciate uh the way that you have that one-on-one relationship with your direct executive team in order to uh, engage and and develop loyalty and retention. But what are some of the strategies that you're doing in the broader organisation to be able to have a um, double the retention that your competitors do? I mean, that's quite an achievement. What are some of the, um, the key initiatives in that space? Well, I think uh, you know that that's through engaging leaders uh, through, and and we are a tiered organisation. So you, you need to be able to get you know I've got to engage my team, who's then got to engage their team, who then have to engage their team, and and and, and so on. But uh, you know we um, we we have our store managers who are vital in in our organisation. You know they're probably the most important people that we have because they're the guys managing the business at the front end. Mm-hmm. And getting them together uh, on an annual basis and, and spending time with them collectively and inspiring them at that point is is really important. But also having uh, contact with them, and and so spending time at the front end of the business on an individual level is important. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we're an organisation in which uh, my my approach there is. When I go to stores, most of the time I go by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you get other retail businesses where there'll be an entourage that go with the CEO, and so it's uh, you know the CEO can never have a real conversation. Mm. Um, I, I just go in uh, as myself, and so I, I spend time with the store managers and can talk to them one on one and get some real feedback uh, as to what's going on, and I think that's important because that sets a tone for the organization as to how we want to be. 
We've got feedback mechanisms. So we have this thing called Ask Peter on our intranet where anyone in the organisation can write in and provide feedback, okay. which you know, can be sometimes a bit confronting, but sure. yeah, we, we acknowledge that. Um, so yeah, creating an environment in which we listen, I mm-hmm. think, is, is important. Mm-hmm. And I saw you recently speak at a uh, diversity debate, and obviously retail is one of those uh, industries where gender diversity and age diversity and things like that are you know, seen more tangibly than in a lot of other industries. You seem to have you know, quite a, a passion for uh, promoting diversity through your workplace. I think it's critical because um, you know we're we're a, a, an organisation where uh, half of our customers are, are females, and oh. um, yeah, it's therefore critical that we've got the female voice in determining what we do as an organisation. And you know, I've, I may have mentioned on the night, you know, there was a particular moment for me where um, I was sitting in a in a in, in a in, in a strategy meeting about one of our businesses, and we were talking about how we improve the business for women and um, there was about 16 people in this meeting and there was only two women in the meeting and I thought this is, this is crazy right uh, so what are we going to do about that and um, yeah so that's why I think it's it's it's, it's critical and yeah, it changes the dynamic in a much more positive way uh, I think um, you, know, you get a different perspective different insight different dynamics the way amongst your leadership team um, it's important and, and I think it's really important to if you, if you get only a limited representation yeah, you, you don't get the benefits um, of of that yeah, so let's say if there's only a couple of females they always feel a bit reticent to put them, their views forward but mm. if there's a critical mass then mm. you, you're going to get much more benefit mm. okay and so when you look at your role now what are the elements that you'd say you most enjoy about it uh the most uh, enjoyable things are just talking with people and and so many differing people and so many differing topics i mean my literally no day is the same uh, no minute is 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 the same uh, it's it's that and and I, you know the fact that uh, we have got a great organization um but there's still so much more we can do to improve it there's you know we, we we've we've done well but um boy there's so much more to, more to do sure and what would you say are the elements of your role that you least enjoy <laughs> uh oh you're always on um yeah and and you know that that can be tough uh so as i mentioned you know i was in the uk last week i took the second week as as leave but you know every day you've got contact happening um so you never you're never switching off uh from the organization um and i think the, the the there's an interesting challenge out there at the moment which is that uh organizations need to invest and need to grow and, and develop but um, because the the markets are not growing as as quickly as as they were a few years ago um, investors are still looking for, for growth mm-hmm. um, and that growth comes through 
bringing more out of your organisation and sometimes it's difficult to balance mm -hmm. achieving sustainable growth and doing the right things for the organisation with delivering the returns for shareholders at the level that they're expecting. So, yeah, sometimes you have to make some decisions which don't you don't necessarily feel are, are uh, ideal. Which could lead to some interesting dialogue at the AGM, I imagine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 10 years in the role, I mean, that's a pretty sort of key milestone. Uh, where's uh, Peter in 10 years from now, do you think? I think, um, I mean, I, I, I feel fortunate in, in that I've, I've worked for a company that's grown significantly. Uh, the products that we sell are great products. People are great people. Um, I have to say there isn't another retail organisation in the country that I particularly would want to be an executive in other than the one that I, I, I work for. Um, but, I, you know, I'm also mindful that uh, at some times there is a shelf life to the to the CEO, um, the average age of, a, uh, sorry, the average tenure of a C CEO in, in this country on the, on the uh, ASX is three and a half years. That's right. So, uh, you know, I'm three times that, uh, almost. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there is a recognition that, you know, it's, it's interesting, the world is changing so quickly and mm. I'm tr I always try and keep myself abreast of, of what's going on, but at some point there will be a shelf life mm -hmm. and I think that will be within the 10 years. I, I, I certainly mm -hmm. can't see myself going in the role for another 10. Um, but I, I think I, I have got great experience and um, I've got a, a role today as a non-executive of uh, the GWA group, which uh, I, I enjoy doing that. Uh, and, and so that's probably the way that I would head is to mm. uh, take on more of those non-executive roles, mm. uh, hopefully in the future. Sure, and uh, I think you're still involved with the Queensland Leaders Program. I am, yeah. Yeah. So um, for people who are listening, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, Queensland Leaders is something that uh, also actually is coming up for, for 10 years next year. Yeah. And um, uh, James Paulson, who's the guy who founded that, um, actually pro approached uh, me 10 years ago and uh, explained this concept of uh, creating a, a, a forum for up-and-coming um, small SME type businesses in Queensland to get exposure to experts in a, in a range of uh, areas uh, to help them grow but also get exposure to uh, larger corporates that uh, ha had experience in having gone through growth and um, it's been a huge success um, now for, for 10 years a lot of companies have have gone through that and some have gone on to to really big things um and you know what's really exciting i think is the alumni program people want to be involved and and retain their their their, their, their uh, membership so uh it's been a really good thing to be part of mm. well I've, I've participated in that program and certainly uh got a lot of value out of that time um so peter uh you know we're getting close to the end of the conversation um i'm interested uh you've talked a lot about the fact that early in your career one of the things that really aided you was getting good broad experience across a whole variety of different 
uh, elements of being a running successful business. If you were advising uh, somebody who's listening to this who has aspirations uh, of becoming a CEO, what are, what are some of the other uh, things that you would uh, suggest that they invest in earlier in their career to enable them to do that? Yeah, so I mean, certainly you 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 get younger people today that uh, are very keen to to move through the organisation quickly, and to take on opportunity. Um, I think uh, you know what one of the key elements of aspiring to be a CEO is. I think you've got to ask yourself the question: Do you want to be a CEO or do you want to be a successful CEO? Mm-hmm. And really thinking through what that means because uh, you can get yourself to being a CEO um, but uh, it can be a pretty lonely place if you're not a successful one Mm -hmm. and um, being a successful one means that you are taking the time to to get the right experience and actually delivering successful outcomes so yeah just getting roles on a CV is not what it's about it's actually about taking on challenges, um, managing those challenges and, uh, and delivering the outcomes. And I think as part of that, it's important for uh, everyone to put themselves in difficult situations and to actually not succeed mm. uh, at times and to learn from that. So to really reflect and, and mm. learn as to, well, why didn't that work? But, uh, you know, a, uh, a failure um, is actually a great learning experience, mm. and uh, don't be afraid of of of, of those. Um, yeah, have have them, but learn from them. Mm. So, really interesting point. Uh, Martin Moore, who was a previous guest on the podcast, talked about at one point in his career deliberately taking on a lot of you know responsibility to basically test his mettle to say, well, if I really aspire to be a CEO. Uh, I need to prove to myself that I've got the tenacity and the uh, the willpower to uh, to manage the you know the diverse responsibilities. Um, so I think that that's an excellent point. And so just to close out, um, Peter, all work and no play uh, makes uh, uh, Johnny a sad boy, as they say. What what's Peter's uh, way of unwinding and and uh, enjoying life outside of work? So the the pace of being a CEO and the travel, and I'm I'm uh, somebody who I, I would be travelling 60 percent of my time. So uh, to to cope with that, you've got to try and keep yourself reasonably fit, um, and uh, that's something that I try to do. And I've, as I mentioned right at the start, I kind of enjoyed athletics, so I've I've taken that that through, and I still run today and go to the gym and. Mm-hmm. And that type of thing, and and that's probably my number one priority outside of work to to do that. Um, but uh, secondly, um, I'm, I'm much more pleasurably um, is still my music uh, when I get the opportunity, and so uh, I still ha- have my bass guitars, and um, uh, whether that's doing things by myself or occasionally playing with some friends and. You know, every now and then we get a bit of a band together and, and, and do stuff. Yeah, that's 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 the best thing. 
Well, we have to talk about that because uh, there's lots of CEOs I know who are uh, backyard or um, weekend warriors and are really keen to play some music. Uh, so, um, look, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know it's Friday and I know you've got things you're no doubt keen to get on with for the rest of uh, or the start of the weekend. Is there anything just to close out you'd like to add or that we haven't discussed that you'd like to share? I think, uh, you know, as I said, um, I never necessarily aspired to be a, a CEO, but, uh, you know, if you test yourself and put yourself in situations, I think you'd be surprised at, uh, at what's possible. So uh, for anyone that's out there thinking about it, then I'd say just absolutely go for it. Well, great advice and thanks again. Uh, look forward to uh, reconnecting and uh, for those people who are listening, we'll put uh, some links in the show notes to uh, Peter's organisation and so you can get a feel for his business. Uh, thanks for your time and uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Well, thanks again for listening to the Aratake podcast and I've got to say I thoroughly enjoyed catching up with Peter and having a conversation with him about his career and his views on what it takes to be a successful CEO and a leader within the current environment. Uh, I find it fascinating that there seems to be a recurring theme uh, through many of my guests and certainly Peter talking about a person needing to make a decision as to whether to just be a CEO or to be a successful CEO I think uh, is very relevant. Certainly in my role as an executive recruiter, I'm regularly meeting with uh, candidates who aspire to be a CEO, or maybe they're already a CEO, and they aspire to the bigger, better job. And often their driver is around money and ego rather than a genuine desire for the work. And I sometimes wonder whether these people are really selling themselves short by feeling that they have to pursue this career rather than doing it out of a a genuine desire for happiness. So I think Peter's uh, advice there is very relevant and certainly uh, something that I'll be uh, reflecting back to others that I meet with when we're discussing these sort of opportunities in the future. Have a fantastic day and I look forward to catching up with you again soon on the Aaron Tate Podcast. Bye-bye.